0: It's the 4th of September, 2020. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, we deliver on a promise. Backtalk has finally made it to the program. Yes, viewer questions at the end of our news. Let's start with a meta-analysis. of 11 studies that looked at um, something that's been out there a while. And the question is, does hip osteoarthritis injections Are they of any value? Do they work? Um, What if you use steroids, platelet-rich plasma, hyaluronic acid? These have all been advocated, all been used. Turns out in this meta-analysis of almost 1,400 patients shows it's not any better than placebo looking at long-term outcomes in patient pain. So again, while we often do these as temporizing measures, what do you do while you're waiting to do surgery? it turns out this is not all that effective. Similarly is a report from uh, a large Finnish database looking at the efficacy of arthroscopic partial meniscectomy. This was done in 146 patients who had medial meniscal disease that was degenerative and they underwent either uh, sham surgery or the partial meniscectomy. They looked at five-year outcomes here in this fairly large cohort, it's large for an orthopedic study, And it showed that those who had the partial meniscectomy had really no significant increase in x-ray damage, but a trend towards a little bit more uh, degenerative joint disease, almost so that if they had larger numbers, they might have actually been able to prove that meniscectomy does cause DJD, which is what we know. We know full meniscectomy does that. The question is whether partial meniscectomy does it. But more importantly, at five years, there was certainly no clinical benefit to having the procedure or a sham procedure. This goes along with the trend that we've seen in recent years where orthopedists are a little less inclined to do arthroscopic meniscectomies and partial meniscectomies on our patients and rather go for more conservative approaches. You know, there's some crazy data out there. Learn this from looking at all the COVID data that you could actually look at COVID um, bacterium or viral counts in sewage in large cities to figure out what the trends were going to be on COVID infection rates. It's a little scary. It's a little Big Brother-like. It's a little disgusting, but it actually works. Similarly, there are studies showing cell phone use and location data during the pandemic shows that you can correlate cell phone activity um, with what happens about whether you're shopping, whether you're staying home, Uh, and it's really quite surprising uh, how um, we can find surrogate measures of the impact of the coronavirus Mm -hmm. on society. So speaking of coronavirus, last week we talked about the meta-analysis from Lancet Rheumatology showing that um, hydroxychloroquine certainly wasn't the big, bad, dangerous drug. It was certainly shown not to have any improvement in mortality, and when combined with Uh, azithromycin may have been associated with more mortality. Well, another meta-analysis was published, this time including chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, and looking at the addition of azithromycin, comes up with the same data. The antimalarials did not reduce mortality, a relative risk of 0.83, with the standard confidence intervals crossing over one, showing really no effect, not a positive one, not not, not a negative one, and that was in patients who are hospitalized with the coronavirus. But when you looked at patients who received the combo of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin there was a significantly increased um, um, uh, hazard ratio or relative risk for mortality of being 1.27 or 27 percent higher now again you could rush to judgment and say uh, hey hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin are dangerous no it just means that they don't work and then when they are given to the worst patients who do you give combination therapy to? The worst patients. These are observational trials at these at this point. None of this data is head-to-head trials, um, one drug versus another with a 6- or a 12-month outcome. No, that's coming up. We're going to get that in the next quarter. But right now, these are all the, the uncontrolled observational reports, all saying the same thing. Antimalarials don't work. People who got antimalarials, you're basically earmarking those who are more sick more likely to be hospitalized, more likely to have bad outcomes. Same thing when you add on um, or add in the antibiotic Zithromax or azithromycin. Bad news for an IL-6 inhibitor, Kevzara. You know, Sanofi's been developing this. They had one early phase 2 trial where it looked like only the patients who received the 400-milligram dose of Kevzara had better outcomes with regard to ventilation, death, discharged in the hospital, so they suspended um, their studies with 200 milligrams, and they've gone ahead and they've done a phase three trial. The phase three trial did not meet its its primary and secondary endpoints. Hence, uh, um, Sanofi has announced that they're suspending the development of cerilumab, 200 or 400 milligrams, for use in COVID-19. Now, this goes along with some of the data about IL-6 inhibitors, where some of it looked really, really good, and some of it somewhat disappointing, especially in light of the fact that we've been talking about IL-6 inhibitors as one of the solutions for the cytokine storm syndrome. I want to remind you, all the trials thus far with IL-6 inhibitors, whether it be tocilizumab or cerilumab, were not done in cytokine storm syndrome, where it probably would work quite well. And there will be trials that will show that data, plus or negative, but these trials were basically looking at what happened when you gave any IL-6 inhibitor to people who were sick and in the hospital or had impending respiratory failure. And it's a mixed bag. It doesn't quite look as good as we had hoped for. It may be that IL-6 inhibition should be reserved for people who have uh, the cytokine storm syndrome, not those who are necessarily very sick and about to go on a respirator. So. Uh, a cohort analysis looked at patients with ANCA-associated vasculitis, 251 specifically. They either had MPA or GPA, and it's a comparative retrospective analysis of what happened when these patients with ANCA-associated vasculitis and severe renal disease received either induction therapy with Cytoxan or Rituxan. And then there's another sub-analysis that looked at what happens when you added in plasma exchange or PLEX. Well, it turns out that remission rates were equally achieved by either cytoxin or rituxin; no big difference, and that the addition of Plex, now this is a retrospective analysis, who's going to get Plex? The sickest of patients. Well, it turns out that in the sickest of patients, then Plex did not add anything to the overall outcomes. The predictors of end-stage renal disease and or renal death was really the GFR being less than 15 cc's. So again, this is good news for what we're seeing in rheumatology, where we can probably move away from the use of cytoxin and use more Rituxan um, and MMF with really good outcomes in patients with GPA, MPA, and associated vasculitis. So another orthopedic journal looked at falls with total hip arthroplasty. You know, I've heard about this. We've talked about this. I've never been sure about the numbers. Well, in this study, it's it's a small study, 108 patients followed prospectively. They had uh, osteoarthritis of the hip. They underwent total hip arthroplasty. Their average age was 72 years old. And within 12 months of having had their hip surgery, 23% had an outpatient fall. Half of these, 56% of these falls, occurred within 6 to 12 months uh, of their surgery, suggesting that Well, I guess half of them occur in the first six months, the other half occur in the second six months. Well, I don't know if that helps you, but it does say that there's a fairly high rate of falls here. And maybe the only predictor for those who are going to have falls are those who had prior joint replacement surgery prior to this. I don't know what that indicates. Maybe the generalized ability. um, Maybe it goes along with age. It's really hard to say, but the idea is that falls are really quite common here. A question came up this week about extra extra intestinal manifestations of Crohn's disease and how it should be managed. So, I found a very nice uh, review that I posted for you and some of the takeaway message in this. EIM, extra intestinal manifestations of IBD, are quite common with uh, IBD. They're more likely to be seen with long standing disease. You don't get them right away, it's really with long, it's like RA and extra articular manifestations. And you're more likely to have it with more severe disease activity, another RA parallel. And then it turns out that um, some of these EIMs, especially peripheral arthritis, enodosum, sweet syndrome, oral, arth- uh, oral ulcers, and episcleritis are associated with activity. So that's all, I think, helpful information. Other uh, axial activity, for instance, and uh, pyoderma gangrenosum, not necessarily associated with activity. So there are a number of drugs. The class of drugs that are eligible for use with management of these EIMs is the TNF inhibitors, the integrin um, drugs like vedolizumab, the JAK inhibitors, and the IL-1223 drug used We know that the TNF inhibitors work very well at uh, the arthritis and the ocular manifestations of um, IBD. Um, they are also good at uh, uh, pyoderma gangrenosum and other skin manifestations of IBD. The integrin-vetalizumab drugs are are somewhat effective at arthritis and arthralgias. We reviewed that in the past, and also at enodosum, but have not been shown to be effective at pyoderma gangrenosum. That's vetalizumab and natalizumab. The JAK inhibitors, which as you know, are now being approved for use in higher doses, if that's allowable or not, with ulcerative colitis. Anyway, we know these work in psoriatic disease, psoriatic arthritis. More recently, it looks like in psoriasis. And maybe even in spondoarthritis, with the recent use, um, upadacitinib data shown at ULAR showing that that works. Um, Tofacitinib is back in studies looking at its effects on spondyloarthritis. Uh, and the JAX, as you know, have been surprisingly effective in a lot of different skin disorders. And such has been the case with skin disorder-associated IBD. Lastly, used seems to work um, when all other therapies fail, especially arthritis, cutaneous, and ocular manifestations, consider those. So, um, seroprevalence in uh, healthcare workers, we talked about this. A nice report from the CDC and MMWR, a study of, of almost 1,300 patients, uh, sorry, healthcare uh, uh, personnel, showed that um, in this large cohort, 6% were positive for antibodies suggesting the presence of prior SARS-CoV-2 infection, and that 29% of patients who had SARS-CoV-2 antibodies were asymptomatic in the, in, in the months preceding that. Um, so, and then most patients who were found to be seropositive had never received the diagnosis of SARS-CoV-2. So, you know, my hospital is not doing routine or r- regular screening of healthcare workers. And I've often wondered whether we should. I don't know about you, but we have to answer a questionnaire every day. You know, have you been exposed? We have to have our temperature taken every day. I do think periodic monitoring of healthcare workers makes sense because you want to keep your patients safe. So we have two questions for Backtalk. Backtalk, you can find um, the icon for it on our email uh, and also on our website. You go there, you click on the button. You have to do it on your computer. You can't do it on your phone. I can't do it on an iPhone, but you you can do it on on an Android phone. But generally do it on your computer and you record your question to me or to others um, there. It would be great if you could tell me who you are, where you're from, and what kind of rheumatology you practice, because I really only want this to be questions from rheumatologists. So let's see what happens when we take a few questions. First question is going to be from Sandra. I hope you can can hear this. Um, If not, we'll work on... Uh, putting this in, but here's a question from Sandra. How does Dr. Cush feel about withdrawing hydroxychloroquine in for senior patients? Sandra, good question. Thank you very much. If you followed Room Now this past week, I didn't cover it in this podcast, but on Room Now this week, there was an article written Uh, And actually, I tweeted this about two weeks ago, and this past week, uh, MedPage Today wrote an article for us um, about a study in New York City of uh, lupus patients who were older, over the age of 60, who um, had to stop their hydroxychloroquine. It was like, I don't know, 40 or so patients, uh, and they showed that you could successfully withdraw hydroxychloroquine in these 40 or so patients who had to stop the therapy usually because of eye problems or retinal problems detected on screening. There were other toxicity issues, and this was just in elderly people. So, Sandra, I don't know if your question had to do specifically with lupus patients taking hydroxychloroquine or even RA patients. But basically, the longer you're on hydroxychloroquine, the more you have the risk of developing eye toxicity. And if you're following patients long enough, you'll see more eye toxicity. So, yes, you can safely stop hydroxychloroquine. You can stop it abruptly. And I guess in many patients, at least in these lupus patients that were followed, they were on other background therapies. So stopping hydroxychloroquine did not make a big difference in overall lupus activity. If, you're, if it's your only drug for either lupus or RA, you may have to substitute other DMARTs. Consider that. Another question, this one's from Matthew. My question for Jack is this, when you do an extensive workup with somebody who's referred to you for a positive ANA and especially a positive ANA that's like 1 to 320 or higher, where does celiac disease screening fit into the differential? I know there's some obvious facets where maybe there's a rash that looks like dermatitis, hepatiformis, or GI symptoms, uh, but where do you find celiac disease screening to be helpful? Because obviously it's not a great test with regard to positive antibodies being present. Of course, it is better on the negative side. So, just kind of curious about that and seeing what your thoughts are, especially if you do an extensive amount of screening elsewhere and you don't find rheumatoid arthritis or other antibodies that would be consistent with an autoimmune condition. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, Interesting question. So, his question has to do with um, you refer to patient with an ANA, solid ANA, 1 to 320. Um, When would you do um, testing for um, celiac disease. And, you know, here we're talking about uh, TTG antibodies, endomysial antibodies, EMAs, and uh, deaminated gliadin peptides or DGP antibodies. You know, um, number one, um, I don't do further testing on people who are sent to me with an ANA that can't be explained. That usually is people hunting for a diagnosis. And obviously we know in rheumatology that That such consults are kind of easy because most of them never have anything or they have an ANA with a demonstrable cause like miscarriage or prior thyroid disease or prior liver disease or even age. You know, there's a number of different reasons why someone have a positive ANA. The bottom line is 1 in 90 ANAs. uh, 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 are going to be lupus. And after that, there's usually not much uh, uh, you're going to find. And hence, most ANAs that are positive aren't useful. The same can be said about testing for celiac disease. Um, The the, the guidelines out there on celiac disease testing basically are don't do any testing unless you have GI symptoms. If you're going to do that battery of celiac antibody tests for people with strange symptoms, and non-enteric symptoms, thinking you're going to identify some kind of systemic disease, well, that's a pipe dream. That ain't going to happen. You know, it's sort of like it's less um, effective than ordering TSH and T4 when you're trying to explain someone's arthralgias and myalgias. I don't know about you. I've done that about 20,000 times in my career and found it to be useful twice. Now, I know the data on occult thyroid disease, and lupus, and RA, and blah, blah, blah. But again, fishing for the cause of symptoms with a test that's not usually otherwise indicated, like you shouldn't order TFTs unless there's clear-cut clinical evidence of thyroid disease. You wouldn't use that to explain musculoskeletal complaints. And the same can be said about celiac disease testing. Again, it does, it does speak to the bigger issue of when you should do testing. Um, and again, I think it's the lawyer in me that says, and I'm not a lawyer, but I've learned from lawyers don't ask a question unless you know what you're going to do with the answer. And that's the problem with doing tests like celiac disease testing. Hence, yes, I've done hundreds of them. And I can think of one interesting case um, um, where the GI person had to do a you know, a small bowel biopsy and whatnot. And that's how you make the diagnosis of celiac disease, not with these antibodies. These antibodies have some utility in people with proven disease but are useless in finding Disease or occult disease. That's it for this week on the podcast. Go to our website to check out uh, these citations and more. You can click on um, Back Talk and give me some back talk and give me some questions. That would be okay for our next podcast. Next week we're going to be off. Um, uh, we're not going to do a podcast, it's going to be a reprise. Next week we're doing uh, a series of reports on reproductive health. Look for that. But we'll take more of your questions in the future. Take care.